just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Welcome back to Defining Us, a special series for cricket conversations exploring Latino identity, culture, misconceptions, and political power. I'm Grace Para, And I'm Julissa Arce. If you listen to our first episode, then you'll know that Latinos, Chicanos, and Latinx people have a long history in America, since before it was even called America. So for this episode, we want to talk about the contributions of Latinx people during the civil rights movement, moments in the fight for equality that are very often overlooked and certainly not included in U.S. history books. We'll discuss how empowering it feels to learn that not only were we there, in the protest, marches, and fight for freedom. But some of the key moments in the civil rights era happened because of the leadership of Chicano and Latino leaders. So what does that mean to us now? And what can we learn from those fights and the struggles we face today? How can we take ownership in this era of civil rights? To help us get into this and more, we'll be speaking with one of the iconic leaders of the 1968 East LA walkouts, Moctezuma Esparza. We'll also be talking to 17-year-old activist Grace Dolan Sandrino, a young advocate for the LGBTQ community who is doing some incredible work right now. Guys, what an exciting few days we've had. The response from episode one has been so incredible. We are over the moon. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, for sending us all of your feedback. We are so excited about the series. And uh, yeah, it's just been it's been an incredible experience. Julissa, how how's the feedback been from your angle? It's Amazing. I am so happy of people writing us and tweeting at us and telling us how much they love feeling seen. And like so many of the things that we talked about were things that they uh, have felt and mm -hmm. conversations they've had with their friends. And then I also love the response from non-Latinx people yeah. who are like, we're loving the series. And I'm so glad that, that we're having so many people listen. So thank you for listening. And Keep listening. Keep listening and keep sending us compliments, especially about <laughs> our beauty, because that is why we do this. Perfect faces for podcasts. Um, so we're excited to delve today into uh, the civil rights movement and the, the place that Latinos have um, historically, both in the past and also in the present. And um, Julissa, you shared with me a story that I, I just feel like our audience needs to hear about your perspective and kind of like your, your first few moments of realizing your place with regard to the civil rights movement. So tell us tell us a little bit about mm. what got you interested in this time in history. So I was in seventh grade and this kid named Justin, I'll like never forget his name or his face. Justin. Uh, but this, this kid named Justin, um, I was placed in this like honors math class and it was like the only place in seventh grade where I felt smart because I still didn't know how to speak English. And so I would like fail open book test. Mm -hmm. uh, but in, in math, like I felt smart because, <laughs> you know, two plus two is four in any language. Yeah. And so I had been placed in this honors math class and Justin raises his hand and he says, why is she in the honors math class? She's a Mexican. <gasps> and I was stunned because because I was not prepared to face any kind of racism because up until then, I thought that racism was a dynamic exclusively between black and white people. Mm -hmm. um, and that's for several reasons. One, my mom, my parents never sat me down and, and told me, you know, racism exists in this country. Like we never had this conversation about us being Mexican uh, or about what that meant in America or racism. Like we just never had that conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason why I was like stunned and not ready for it. Mm -hmm. The second reason is because when I was learning about the civil rights movement, I really only learned about the civil rights movement again in, in sort of this very binary dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I remember like asking myself, "What fountain did we drink from?" Oh my god! Because it wasn't in my books. Yeah, and you know, I remember thinking like, "What what fountain did like the Asian kids that were in class with me like what?" did they drink from and when we were learning about like the the chinese for example we learned about 
them building the railroad, but not what kind of discrimination they may have faced. And uh-huh. we know that they did, right? Uh-huh. And so, um, and so I just wasn't prepared for it because I just didn't know that that existed in the past. And so then I had then I started sort of answering these questions, and I realized that as an adult. I still had these questions that I had when I was in seventh grade mm-hmm. about what was our place, like where do we fit in in the civil rights era? Like, did we take on any of those fights? And wh- if we didn't, then why? And what I found is that there's so many instances of things that we are fighting for today, whether it's in healthcare or education or immigration, that were being fought in the civil rights era. Mm-hmm. And to me, like I had such a sense of empowerment knowing that we've had, we've always had this this place in America and we have been leaders in, in pushing for equality and for freedom mm-hmm. and we've been there. And that was really empowering for, for, empowering for me to learn about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that we understand the Latinas have faced discrimination that's had an impact on on every element of the way that we that we live. But what we don't really hear about are the victories and the Im, the impact that we've had in the greater um, scale. Um, you've talked about some of the the current immigration laws being, you know, relevant relevant now. Tell us about some of the current immigration issues that you think stand out most for the Latino community. Well, I think you know when we talk about immigration. We have to we have to understand that immigration laws have always been rooted in race, uh-huh. right? So, like going back to like the 1700s, like 1790, uh-huh. uh, the definition of a citizen was a free white person uh-huh. is who could be a citizen. Uh-huh. So, like starting from there, this immigration laws have always had a root in in race. What's interesting to me about what's happening today is that. There continues to be so much racism within the immigration system that we try to cover up and say has nothing to do with race. Mm-hmm, right. So like mm-hmm. if you take a look at like SB4 in Texas. In Texas, our home right? state. Yeah. Our home state. Shout out to Greg Abbott. Just kidding. I mean, I'm shouting him out, but in a bad way. Mm. Oh, that guy. That guy, man. Um, that guy. Tell yeah, tell but, us tell so, us. So, you know, Greg Abbott has just been like the worst the worst in Texas and Ken Paxton, his attorney general. Yeah. So people go out to vote and vote them both freaking out of office. Yes. Um, but un- under their regime, we had this very overtly racist law as before, which mm-hmm. basically said that the police could stop uh, people mm-hmm. and ask them for their immigration status. Mm-hmm. And they could do so if, um, you know, if you not, not even if you had like committed a crime, can I ask you about your immigration status? But if I think yeah. that you could commit a crime, I can ask you about your immigration status, which is bullshit and racist. But what they will say is that, no, these laws aren't racist, but I'm sorry. Like who is going to stop? Who's going to get stopped and asked about their immigration status if not people that look like you and me? Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so that's one thing. Mm-hmm. That's one one of the laws that that is like immigration law that is clearly racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's crazy to me is to think back to some of the fights, the civil rights fights that we've had. You know, not that long ago in California, we had Prop One Eighty Seven, which was like a very similar a very similar law mm-hmm. to as before mm-hmm. and that was fought and defeated uh, but then now we have a, a renewed sense that these things can happen in our country mm-hmm. and we're seeing that that they're winning right because this law is right now going on in Texas right. and it's happening in Texas right I've seen actually my parents go through um, something very specific they live in this is going to sound douchey but there's it's context my parents live in a, in a gated community in Houston and um, uh, under under <laughs> Jesus Christ I mean just in the last few months one of the biggest things that's kind of rocked their neighborhood is that uh, they the neighborhood independently decided to require anybody coming into the neighborhood to show their license and registration mm. and uh, this affects specifically the people who work in this neighborhood who are gardeners and who are housekeepers and who may themselves be undocumented, who are now struggling to be able to even enter the neighborhood to do their job because they've, they, they're they cracking down. And my, my dad told me about this and he was like, I know why they're doing this. They're clearly trying to 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 hit the undocumented community and shame them or to not let them in. But what they don't seem to realize is that 
they are the backbone of the labor force in this community. So the second that, you know, you request somebody's papers to get into the neighborhood, well, maybe you're not going to have a a gardener then, you know, and all the like amenities that you've grown accustomed to in your own neighborhood, you're not going to have. So my dad was like, look, I I obviously like I hire who I hire to do these things for us. I'm not going to stop that. So he has offered personally to take anybody from, you know, his, uh, uh, who who works on the house, whether it's, you know, a pool pool guy or housekeeper, and he'll go pick them up to then bring them into the neighborhood, which is an extra step that he shouldn't have to do. But the reality is this crackdown in Texas is really affecting a lot of people, including my parents. Um, and they're not going to stand for that personally. Yeah, but you know what? Also, like, fuck that. Because, yeah, like... We shouldn't care for people to be able to go to work just so that we can have like these amenities. You know, it's like yeah. these are fucking human beings yeah. who are working, who deserve to make a living. Yeah. And that's why we should we should care and push back against these renewed attempts to racialize immigration laws. Right. Who, that make it okay. It, it These laws are making it okay to discriminate on the basis of race. Mm-hmm. Because I don't care how much you tell me that SB4 is not racist. Mm -hmm. It is a racist law. Yeah. It's racist and it's anti-immigrant. And those things go hand in hand. Yes. Um, So so we are seeing, obviously, echoes of civil rights issues in the past that are haunting us to this day. What are some others that that strike you as ills that we have yet to cure? Well, one of the, um, you know, we're going to be talking to uh, Moctezuma Sparsa uh-huh. uh, about this. Uh-huh. Um, but one of the one of the things that when I learned about it, I was like, oh, my God, I had no idea that this uh, that this even happened was this walkouts in 1968. Right. That, um, you know, 22,000 students walked out and the things that they were protesting and the things they were walking out for. Are this is here in, in East L.A. It, here in East L.A. Uh-huh. Um, the things that they were fighting for. It's it breaks my heart to know that they're the very things that we are still fighting for today. So some of the things that, you know, they were fighting for back then was um, was making sure that the history that they were learning about reflected their experiences and it reflected their backgrounds and their history Mm -hmm. because the the school districts that they um, that they were studying in were like, you know, 90 something percent Latino and yet the history that they were learning had no Latinx history, Chicano history um, in them. And so they were fighting one to 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 be able to learn in school the history that was being taught to them at home. Mm -hmm. They were fighting to be able to speak Spanish in school. Mm -hmm. Um, They were fighting to have better classrooms, to not have 4000 students assigned to a single college counselor. Um, they were fighting uh, so that they weren't being they weren't told that because they were Latino that they shouldn't think about college and they should just think about going to to work. These are all relevant today. These yes. are all fights that are still happening. It's shocking to see how little progress has been made. The bilingual thing actually makes me you, you mentioned the fact that um, Spanish uh, people will get hit for speaking Spanish. <laughs> so fucked up, man. Yeah. And uh you know, regarding bilingualism, one thing I learned is, um, so New Mexico became a state in 1912. And when it became a state, it actually registered not one, but two languages as the official state languages, both English and Spanish, something I didn't know at all. So to go from a place where historically, bilingualism was not only accepted, but embraced and, and taken as a standard condition for a state to devolve to a place where children are being swatted for speaking that language publicly is 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 really fucked up yeah and like you today you still have you still have people who are told that they should go back to where they came from yep, um, yep. because they they're speaking Spanish in the workplace and it's like you idiot these you know those the, those people were like the specific instance that I'm thinking about it's like these people uh, were Puerto Rican and they were speaking Spanish and mm-hmm. they're being told to go back to where they came from and it's like um I am where I came from yeah also i have to call out something you and i've talked about but the strange commodification of bilingualism and trilingualism where now you can speak another language but it should be french or german or something that's a little bit sexier and the kids who speak multiple languages are ones whose parents pay out of pocket for them like a lot of money like a lot of money it's something that like wealthy kids do it's Mm -hmm. so it's so it's it's been commodified i mean really they've put a they've put a 
an, a barrier to entry, I think, for a lot of a lot of students. Um, the other thing of like education that you know, I I am a huge advocate for education and viewing education as a human right, as mm-hmm. something that um, every person should have access to and that every person should have access to a quality education. Right. And what's so disheartening, um, even all these years later, after 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 amazing leaders have fought for this way back in the 60s, is that, uh, yes, we've made some progress, mm-hmm. but when you look at the schools that Latino students go to, they they are some of the most underfunded schools yeah. in the country. And there's also this idea that, you know, I think when we look back in history and like think back to like Brown versus Board of Education, for example, right? And we think that schools were desegregated because of Board versus Brown of Education. And there's two things that stand, that stand out to me. One is that, you know, seven years before Brown versus Board of Education, there was a case in California Mendez versus Westminster, in which um, a Mexican-American student wanted to go to an all-white school, mm-hmm. and uh, she was not allowed to. And so this went all this case went all the way up to the California Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and uh, the Mexican-American family they won. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the, the the judge that presided over that case went on to become a Supreme Court justice that presided over Brown versus Board of Education. So like, you know, it didn't, it didn't, the thing is it didn't start with Brown versus Board of Education, but it also didn't end there. Mm-hmm. Because then, um, you know, Martha, Martha Luther King talks about this in his book, Why We Can't Wait. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the fact that even after Board versus Brown of Education, only 9% of schools in the South were desegregated like nine years after right, that. Right. And that if they continued at that same pace, it wouldn't be until 2054 when schools would be desegregated. And I'm sitting here thinking like, Martha Luther King, you would be so sad because <laughs> let me tell you how segregated schools still are. Yeah, so we might actually yeah. be on pace for that 2054, <laughs> you know? Hopefully. Because, because, and this is what I mean about laws being there's this sort of like veil of uh, justice mm-hmm. that is told to us mm-hmm. where really what's behind the curtain is racism right yeah. so like even with schools like yeah we're, we're schools are it, it is illegal to desegregate schools but when you look at schools and the way that districts are drawn yep um, then then you can kind of see a, a through line uh, that is very racialized right, right. so like Schools continue to be incredibly segregated, except now we say, well, it has nothing to do with race. It has to do where like where you live. And so where you live is where you go to school. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, but then you have to take a look at why are those districts drawn that way in the first place? Like, why do people live where they live? Like, right. why, you know, are some neighborhoods, uh, why are the schools at some neighborhoods still? You know, I, I run a scholarship fund in New York. Mm-hmm. And um, we give scholarships to immigrant students regardless of their immigration status. And I'm very proud to say that we've given out almost half a million dollars in the Ooh. last six years. Oh, we get it. You help kids. Um, yeah, Perfect and it's amazing. But you know what's kind of crazy is mm-hmm. that in some of the schools where we get applications from, some of the schools still do not have a college counselor. In the entire school, there is not a college counselor. And you want to know the majority of the students that go to those schools are Latino and black students. The expectation being that they aren't ready for college, that they don't belong in college, that they don't have the resources to go to college, so why bother? That and also, is, that's where the, they also, those schools don't get any money. If anything, those are the students, I think, who need college counselors even more because right. they're the ones who need additional support and help and guidance to get into college. Right, because many of them are first-generation college students. They yeah. don't have yeah. someone at home that can guide them and tell them, how to get into college. Right. It's a, it's a budget thing, too. I mean, these schools can't necessarily afford to fill those positions. Um, and, you know, college college is probably the first... College, conversations about going to college has to be one of the first things to go when you just don't have a big budget. So so it was crazy to me about what we were talking about um, in, like, episode one about the things that Latinos care about and immigration not being, like, the number one most important issue. Of course, it's a big issue, and I don't want to lose sight of that, but mm-hmm. um, education was, like, a big one. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so much of what drives educational equality and drives access to education is where you live. Right. And that goes back to housing discrimination that, um, you know, that the African-American community was fighting for in the 60s and um, getting the housing, the Fair Housing Act 
past, right? And so much of that was because you didn't have access to loans and people wouldn't sell you homes in white neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? People would say, like, I remember the, so Cory Booker has this amazing story about his parents and how he bought, how his parents bought a home um, in a white neighborhood only because they had their, like, white friend go buy the home for them. Mm-hmm. Because up until that point, uh, they kept they kept asking their realtor to show them homes in certain neighborhoods. And right. the realtor would be like, that home's sold already. It's it's not available anymore. And it wasn't that it wasn't available. It's that it wasn't available to them, to them. because yeah. they were black buyers. Right. And you know, some very similar things Did you happened have to the Latino community. like that growing up? What was your experience with housing when you were growing up? So I... Hmm. I didn't grow up like I didn't I I don't know like my neighborhood. So first of all, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, mm-hmm. where there's more Mexican restaurants than there are McDonald's. <laughs> first of all, love that. Uh, and so there were a lot of people that looked like me and that and that were from different economic socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that there's this idea that like if you live in a Latino neighborhood that then you must live in a like low income neighborhood. Which is not the case. Right? Yeah. And in my experience, like I went to school and in my high school, in my high school, for example, there were there were like Range Rovers in the student parking lot. Mm-hmm. But then there were also, you know, kids who were like on free lunch. Right. So there was like a huge socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomic diversity. Right. Which. Is, yeah. Which is which is pretty rare. And. I think special. I mean, that sets you up for understanding that regardless of what your racial or ethnic background is, that socioeconomic background, there's like a range of origin for people as well. Yeah. But I was, you know, I was very, I was very fortunate that the neighborhood that we lived in had a really great school, like a really great public school mm-hmm. to go to. And so the, my last two years of high school, I went to this really amazing school. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, then a lot of my friends that I met in college that were Latino students that came from like San Antonio, their experience going to school and like the neighborhoods that they lived in was so crazy. Mm-hmm. And it was so different than 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 my experience. Mm-hmm. And the horror stories that I would hear just even about the conditions like in the cafeteria and the bathrooms. And it was it was a stark difference and yeah. that's what i mean about like if you are born into a certain zip code mm-hmm. and you go to the schools that that zip code is assigned to then you're going to have a very different experience mm-hmm. than somebody else who was who happened to have been born into a different into a different zip code and and that's what people in the 60s were fighting for was to say where you are born mm-hmm. shouldn't determine your entire life mm-hmm. Right. It shouldn't it shouldn't affect everything you're going to do for the rest of your life. Right. And yet it does. Right. In many cases. Um, Okay, let's talk about a couple of other things. One thing uh, that that you brought to my attention, a story that I wasn't aware of that I think is one of the more interesting historical victories of uh, Latinos actually there's a story about cheerleaders that's very mm-hmm. interesting because you also were a cheerleader, right, mm-hmm. growing up. So there's a, maybe a point of entry there that was of interest to you. So tell us about your experience being a cheerleader and then, like, why this one particular case back in the 60s, I believe it was, was so impactful for Latinos. So, so first of all, I want to say I became a cheerleader because I thought that that's what you did when you were an American girl. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to be an all-American girl. Because... I wanted to be Kelly Kapowski. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I became a cheerleader because that's what I thought yeah. I needed to do to like fit in and not, it wasn't so much just about like the whole like, you know, like I want to be popular mm-hmm. in high school. It was really about like, I want to be American and so yeah. I'm a cheerleader. Yeah. Um, what's crazy though, it's like even, even the, fa- this is definitely crazy because even the fact that I could be a cheerleader being a Mexican American, there is a reason why I could do that. Right. And the reason that I could do that is because of really brave students in the 1960s who stood up against racism and were like, we're going to be cheerleaders because in Crystal City, Texas in the 60s, mm-hmm. there was there was like in 1969, there were two vacancies on the cheerleading squad. Mm-hmm. And so the two Mexican-American girls were like, we want to be cheerleaders. Mm-hmm. And the administration told them, sorry, you can't be a, you can't be cheerleaders because we already met our quota of one Mexican-American cheerleader on the squad. Oh my 
God. I'm like, I'm, I'm like paralyzed with anxiety thinking about that's so terrible and then (sighs) and then so then the the so then of course you know the the whole community was like up in arms about this so they were like sorry we don't mean to be racist so so we take that back it's not about the quota it's actually because we require the parent of a cheerleader at least one parent to have a high school diploma oh Oh, sure. Because that, that affects the ability of a 15-year-old girl to do to, a cheer. Right. And yes, to jump yes. high. And to and jump to high. And to do the splits. Like, yeah. yeah. Cool, cool, cool. That makes sense. Way to go. And the reason and the, you know, the, the reason they did this is because they knew that most of the Latino parents in the community did not have high school diplomas because they were farm workers. Right. And they actually, um, and, and I mean, they also like held elections um, because these were like farm workers that moved. So they, they would follow the harvest season yeah. um, around the country. Mm-hmm. And so they would hold elections uh, for school board when these parents and this community w- were gone, when they were gone like to California. Oh my God. And this was all an attempt to not appear Latino to... The, to the other districts, right? The ad, right, right, right. And, because and to keep people. I mean, it's all about like you know keeping people in their place, like, right? You don't. You shouldn't be a cheerleader. Like that's not what you're. You're just going to be a farmhand anyway. So why? Right. You know, you don't need. You that's, don't need that fluff, right? But what's amazing Terrible. and what's so inspiring to me about this, these walkouts in Crystal City, Texas, mm-hmm. is that you know what we won, like yeah. The the cheerleaders were able to become cheerleaders. Mm-hmm. Like they led this amazing walkout. Mm-hmm. So people from even people from California traveled to Texas to join them mm-hmm. in this fight because they knew that it wasn't just about being cheerleaders. Right. Right. It was about having equal access to opportunities in schools. Mm-hmm. And they were able to lead real change in their district. And they they changed the way that that people could become cheerleaders and they got rid of all this bullshit requirements for becoming cheerleaders. And they also had huge changes in the makeup of their school board because they demanded that they had more teachers that looked like them. They demanded that the school board was more representative of the community. And this was in the 60s, right? And and so just knowing that the reason I could be a cheerleader in 1998 was because these people in the 1969 stood up to bullshit yeah. and racism, and they won. And they won. You know, the, the, the school board element that you're mentioning, too, is so important because as we are about to walk into midterms, we talk, uh, there's just a sort of, like, air of how important certain elections are. And they're always the big federal elections, you know? It's always president or it's even senator. Uh, but it's it's never for the kind of smaller positions mm-hmm. like board like school boards that I think are so much more impactful not not more impactful but just as impactful on a much more uh, on a much more accessible scale and I say that because one of the big incentives um, one of the big things that we're doing here with with this podcast is to remind people about voter registration and about voting in your elections regardless of the uh, the, the size of the election itself uh, and with midterms around the corner mm-hmm. a lot of people are going to have the opportunity to to vote in these smaller elections. So look at this as an example of what voting for a school board member can do very directly. Yeah. Very, very, very yeah. directly. That's why another reason I'm so glad you shared that story. Yeah. And I also think it's, I think so, so many times, and I know a lot of the things that we're talking about today on, on, in this episode, uh, are heavy and they're like things that I know would make me angry if I was listening to it. But I think it's also important to remind ourselves of what's possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and to remind ourselves that, that we've had fights in the past that we've won mm-hmm. and we should fight some hope in that. Yeah. And, and hope to know that just like, you know, these cheerleaders in the 60s got the rights to bear pom-poms, mm-hmm. we can win... Uh, you know, we can win our right to do a lot of things right now. We yeah. can win the right to like live wherever we want, to not be discriminated against, to not walk into a freaking bank and get charged more interest just because we are people of color, even though, you know, we have 800 credit scores. Right, 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 right. I, I don't. I wish I did, but uh, <laughs> made some mistakes in my youth. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think two key points that we want to bring up here. Number one, voting and getting to the polls is huge with regard to making change. And the second is that organizing is such, such, such a pivotal step. Because all these stories that you're mentioning, Julissa, don't involve just one person being like, Mm-mm. I'm going to change the face of the world. It involves leaders gathering people together in groups to impact change. You can be your own advocate, but 
we're all stronger together. So, yeah. I mean, even you and I in creating this podcast realize that our voices together can make more of an impact than than we can individually. That's been a, a really special thing to carry through each of these episodes. So, yeah, is there some heft to what we're talking about today? Absolutely. But it's it's important. It's important to just sit down and learn the history and listen to these stories. Um, and I, you know, I, I and be empowered by them and be empowered and by be them. Like, exactly. Inject it with hope by these stories. Yes. I know I have been like, oh my wow. God. Yes. And our guests today, by the way, are people who whose stories, uh, one of whom has been an advocate for 50 plus years, one of whom is 17 years old today, uh, or rather turning 18 in the next week. Um, and and these, these people represent a kind of broad swath of what activism means today for the Latino community. And uh, we're so excited to share our interviews with them too. Julissa, you know, one of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth. I'm a big fan. I brush uh, three, four, 12 times a day. I'm, I wonder if it's such an important thing that we do every day. How come there there aren't like lessons on how to brush your teeth, I like in school or something? Oh, well, I think that there are, but I think they're bad lessons. Like I remember a fake brushing an, uh, an apple with a toothbrush. I don't know why I did that. I went to I went to an Amish school. Clearly, <laughs> um, uh, Quip though, guys, Quip, 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 Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers. And teeth it was designed, designers, teeth designers, as we established. Yes, by teeth designers, uh, and it was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, more affordable, and even enjoyable. Although I find teeth brushing generally enjoyable, so Quip. I'm with you on that importance. Um, people brush too hard. I do that. Some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive, but with Quip, a built-in two-minute timer pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides. Ooh, that sounds sexual. Uh, which helps guide a full and even clean. Now, Quip doesn't even require a clunky charger. It runs for three months on one charge. That's, That's the thing I hate most about my electronic toothbrush because... Well, I'm going to get on it. Gotta I'm going to get quip. Get, I'm going to get quip. Uh, <laughs> and I'm finally going to do it. I'm going to get a quip because having to travel with a electronic toothbrush that weighs like three pounds is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Also, Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the ADA and it has thousands of verified five-star reviews. They're also backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. So get on this, guys. Quip starts at just $25 and if you go to getquip.com slash crookedconvos right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That is your first refill pack for free at getquip.com Slash Cricket Convos. Slash Cricket Convos. Grace. Julissa. Let me tell you about Stitch Fix. <gasps> Stitch Fix is an online personal stallion service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. Body. I need a lot of help with that. I need a lot of help I with that. I don't know how to style. I have the body of a pygmy. The budget of a non-working kindergartner and the lifestyle of a, a, a Kardashian. But wow. I, I don't have the money for it, but I, man. that is a that's quite um, the formula. But I still think that Stitch Fix could help you with I all think of so. that. So I just think go so. to stitchfix.com/slash/crookedconvos and tell them your sizes what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item. That's interesting because I I will spend, I will throw down for a good jacket and a good pair of jeans, but I don't want to spend more than like, I don't know, 75, 80 bucks on a purse. I'm not one of these ladies that likes to spend lots of money on a handbag. They're investments. They're, I feel like if I ever went poor, I could like resell really? some of my bags. Yeah. Oh, maybe I should do that. Yeah. I also don't love pants. Um, because I don't have the booty for them. Uh, <laughs> Dude, so I mostly do dresses. I don't like pants either. Uh, and Stitch Fix has helped, has sent me some pretty sweet dresses. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who will handpick five items to send to your door. Then you try them on, pay only for what you love, and then return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. There's no subscription required. You can sign up to receive scheduled shipments or get your fix wherever you want. I see what you did there, Stitch Fix. I like it. Cheeky. S Stitch Fix styling fee is only $20, which is applied towards anything that you pick up from your shipment. So it's like basically free because they send you such cute things that you're going to want to keep them. Dude. So you're not going to have to pay the styling fee. Oh, but if you do this. have to pay it, it's only $20. I got to get on this. 
Get started now at stitchfix.com slash crooked combos slash crooked combos and you'll earn an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash crooked combos to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash crooked combos. Stitchfix.com slash crooked combos. They had it in the copy like five times, so I just threw them an extra one. There's also an exclamation point at the end of one of them, which I like a lot. Stitchfix.com slash crooked combos. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. So I'm so excited for this guest, Moctezuma Esparza. He is a real unsung hero from the civil rights era, just an incredible activist and and icon from, from that time. He led one of the largest student walkouts in history, 22,000 students walked out in East LA to protest just terrible conditions in their high schools from having such high dropout rates of 50% plus dropout rates. And he's just was so amazing in leading that fight. Um, He is a Mexican-American producer, executive, and community activist. He's a producer on Selena, the movie. It's an amazing movie. Uh, And he's just done so much for our community, and I'm so excited to welcome him to today's Crooked Conversation. Right before we were going to start talking about the East LA walkouts, you said, I don't consider myself Latino. Can you tell us more about that? That's a bomb drop right there. Well, I'm a Chicano. (gasps) Oh, okay. Latino is a made-up construct of identity that emerged in the 70s in order to create a big tent to include Mexican-Americans, Chicanos, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, uh, and Central Americans in a larger tent that it was basically promoted by commerce. It is a word that was promoted uh, by those who were rejecting the word Hispanic because that was promoted by the government. Uh, by the Republican administration in the Reagan years uh, in the Department of Commerce that was more aimed at the use of the word to promote advertising in order to create a big tent in advertising. Latino was a word that was created for a big tent in social organizing and politics. And I participated in the creation of that word, and it was a calculated, conscious conversation that all Mm -hmm. of us had back then because Chicanos, Mexican-Americans, were the vast majority of all the people who could say they had commonality of having been subject to the conquest of Spain uh, in Latin America. So we had a commonality of history and and language in terms Mm -hmm. of the conquest. Um, However, we were two-thirds of everybody, and we thought that collectively we would all be better off by creating an identity there could be a big tent. But I did not intend back then, and I did not realize that it would mean the sacrifice and the loss of my identity as a Chicano. And because you feel you felt like the term Chicano and Latino were at odds or couldn't essentially coexist no, synonymously. It's, it's not that they don't they can't coexist. It's one that um, Latino has become predominant and been widely accepted without a real understanding or mm-hmm. consideration for why it came into existence as a word. Can I ask you, even that identity, uh, that Chicano identity, where did that come from? Because, like, for example, me, like, <clears throat> I was born in Mexico. I was born okay. in East L.A. So is that is that the difference between That's being, like, difference. Mexican and Chicano? That's right. Because they come from the same word. Okay, Mexican. Is has as its origins Mexicano. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So the Aztecs did not call themselves Aztecs. Right. They called themselves Mexicas. Mexicas. Right. That's right. I like that. Mexica. Mexica. Okay. Mexica becomes Mexicano. Mexico. And you look at the weak first syllable and it becomes Chicano. Okay. Hmm. So it's the same word. And that word is Nahuatl, the indigenous language. 
And so the growth of the Chicano movement, the growth of what happened 50 years ago, uh, the civil rights struggle that emerged, was an indigenous struggle, mm-hmm. one where we were reclaiming our identity as indigenous people. Okay, so 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 in Estelle, and and coming back to these um, to this very historic walkout that I don't believe a lot of people know about, because I know that. You know, I didn't learn about them in school. Like right. this was uh, learning about the East LA walkouts was not something that was part of the civil rights conversation. Or you you mentioned uh, Crystal City, Texas, which we'll, which we're going to talk about um, also. But that wasn't part of the civil rights conversation. So for, can for you who? For, for who was it not part of the civil rights conversation? Because it was part of ours. Well, I think yeah. for millennials well, today, we're not hearing about this. That, we yes. didn't grow up so, understanding any of this. Right. So that's, that's, thank you for that. Thank you for that um, clarification, because it absolutely was part of the conversation. What I mean is, it is not something that we are learning in school as part of the civil rights history. Well, that was one of the demands that we made back then was to have our history included in the curriculum. So the context for the walkouts is that when I was growing up, we were not encouraged to go to college. We were not told that we could be professionals. We were not in any way promoted to do well in school. And the expectation was is that we would be workers. A labor force, basically. We, are, we were a labor force. And uh, the dropout rate for Chicanos and Chicanas back then was more than 50%. Mm-hmm. My class at Lincoln High School, which was a six-year high school, we started with 300. We were a winter class, which are smaller. That means we graduated in January. And only half uh, graduated. Wow. Hmm. And only four went to a four-year college out of the 150 four out of the original 300. And that was the highest number that went to a four-year college up until that moment from Lincoln that I knew of. Wow. Okay? So typically it was one or two from the summer classes, which were double in size, uh, or maybe one from our class, the winter classes, that might have gone to college. Mm -hmm. And I was valedictorian. Uh, You know, I, I had a high GPA. I did very well in my test. And my counselors said, you shouldn't go to UCLA where you've been admitted Hmm. because you're not going to do well. You're not ready for that. Uh, Maybe you should go to a junior college. Now, I'm the valedictorian (laughs) who scored, you know, in the top 2% of my SAT uh, cohort and uh, without, you know, any prepping or, or taking private classes or anything like that. So... And I had a father who told me that, you know, that education was how I would be able to create my life and mm-hmm. promoted that. And so yeah. uh, that was the strength that I had to, mm-hmm. to ignore that advice and to have it fuel my anger and see clearly that although maybe I might do well, that the rest of my classmates were being denied. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a sentiment of of submission, basically, being pushed into submission. Oh, we we accepted our place and uh, of being just workers. Right. We accepted it. It was the psychological prison of the continuation of both the conquest, right, because typically we were darker. We Mm -hmm. were more indígena, right, more mestizo. Mm -hmm. There were some güeros. Mm -hmm. And they were in the same boat as we because we were also then part of this historical phenomenon of the United States war against Mexico where the Southwest was taken. And if you were a Mexican, you were to be dispossessed, Mm -hmm. right? So we had that as a context. So whether or not you were a Californio who were here uh, before 1848 when the United States won the war, uh, or you were a, a manito in Nuevo Mexico, or you were a Tejano, right? Uh, we were all in the same boat. And that boat was is that we weren't going to be professionals. We weren't right. going to go to college. We weren't going to have our contributions honored or acknowledged, uh, or even uh, acknowledging that the California Constitution, when it was formed in 
in 1849 uh, was originally in Spanish as well as English. Mm -hmm. None of this history was being taught. So at what point did you say, well, we have to take some action here because this... The times. The times were transformative. Mm -hmm. Right? So this is 1968 March when the walkout happened. Mm -hmm. This is less than three years after the Watts riots. Mm -hmm. Okay? It is less than a few years from uh, the black power movement, Mm -hmm. uh, the free speech movement, uh, the women's rights movement, the anti-war movement. It was the time. Right. There was a sense, there was an overall, the pulse was one of take action against the injustices that you're feeling, regardless of your identity, your background. If you're feeling as a community that there is action to be taken, take, now's now's the time. It was the time. And it Mm -hmm. was also uh, a comparison and reference to our sense that we in the city, as Chicanos, were being completely overlooked and ignored Mm -hmm. because if anyone was getting attention, it was the farm workers. It was Cesar Chavez. Mm -hmm. And we weren't farm workers. We were not in the fields. And 80% of all Mexicanos, Chicanos, were urban. Mm -hmm. But the only attention that was being provided was to the farm workers. And we were also appreciative that our parents, many of them had been farm workers. Mm -hmm. Right, and so we did identify with the farm workers, and I was trained by Cesar Chavez's people as an organizer from the age of about 15, 14. Mm-hmm. and so that was part of my background. In that, I went on the march from Delano to Sacramento, mm-hmm. uh, the famous march yeah. that Cesar Chavez had in mm-hmm. 1966, I think it was. So you were in high school at the time. Yeah, I yeah. was in high school, and I was on that march. One one last question I have, and then I don't know if you have more grace. Yeah. But, um, one last question I have is, I'm wondering whether you see the East LA walkouts as a framework that students are now utilizing for their own prote- protest. And and when I see um, like the Parkland students in in Florida who led walkouts and they were able to organize walkouts throughout the country in support of of their cause, do you think that the East Absolutely. LA walkouts provided that framework? There were walkouts that continued in East LA to this day. And it went to from East LA to San Antonio, to Chicago, to New York, to Denver, to Albuquerque, all over the country. Within two years, we heard of walkouts all over the country, and I spent a year traveling the United States, organizing and taking the message, right? And Corky Gonzalez in Denver had a youth leadership conference where people came from all over the United States. Puerto Ricans, the young lords came and worked with us. Uh, People from uh, Mexico City, some of whom were killed in Tlatelolco, Mm -hmm. we got to know. Uh, It became an international and a national movement, which was huge. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were part of the mainstream of the civil rights movement of the 60s. And we were uh, in the news and part of that whole conversation. It is ironic and sad and tragic that you tell me that 50 years later, you haven't heard about it, you weren't taught it, uh, and that I'm here sharing things with you for the first time that were transformative and that are in large measure why you came to the United States and ended up getting a college education because of what we did 50 years ago. Yep. Well, that, and that's, that's why we wanted <laughs> to talk to you. Because, yes, yes. Because you know, I, I, <clears throat> I know that I didn't learn it in school, and but I knew, and I had so many questions about where were Latinos during the civil rights movement, and so I took it upon myself to go find out. And, and learning about this walkout inspired me so much to know that not only did we have a place in the civil rights movement, but that we were leaders, that you were a leader in that civil rights movement. And exactly what you said, that the reason I was able to go to college and have a college education and the reason so many more Latinos are going to college now is because of these walkouts. And we want we want to make sure that that all of our listeners and that they share with their friends and family so that people know more about this rich, amazing history. Because this year we are celebrating the 50th year anniversary of the walkout, yeah, 
And I'm like, why aren't we making a bigger deal about this? And so thank you so much for being here and for sharing all of this with us. And our next guest today is a 17-year-old Afro-Latina trans teen LGBTQ activist and advocate for marginalized youth. This young woman has done so much work already in her life. It is absolutely incredible. And so we wanted to talk to her about a number of things. Um, She's not only been an ambassador to the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African Americans under the Obama administration, uh, but she also serves on the Kennedy Center Youth Council, the Aspen Institute's National Youth Commission on SEED, and she's received the title of Young Futurist from The Root for 2017. She's also a writer, and you can see many of her pieces in Teen Vogue. Uh, we're so excited to have her with us today, Grace Dolan Sandrino. I feel like you're you're fighting so many different fights, right? Being a woman of color, being a woman, being a woman of color, being trans, and so many of these um, labels within within the Latinx community. Um, you know, there's so much racism within our community. There's so much homophobia and transphobia, and I'm wondering whether. Like I'm wondering how you you deal with that and how you advocate for yourself within the Latinx community that tends to be, like I said, very homophobic and very transphobic. Mm-hmm. Like how do you push back against that within our own community? Well, within our own community, I first have to approach any table with this this energy of understanding. One, understanding your pre-existing conceptions um, and understanding of me. And then, two, asking for respect from whoever I'm sitting across from to understand me and understand my story. Mm -hmm. Um, I think something that is lacking in a lot of spaces across our nation right now, across the globe, is civil discourse. Um, And that disagreement is beautiful. and that disagreement can really be transformative mm-hmm. and and have long-lasting effects if after we disagree, we leave with something. So, so when I come to a table to have a discussion, I'm coming to give some education and also be educated. Um, so whenever I'm mm-hmm. sitting at a table with someone having a discussion, there has to be that there first, that mutual respect and that that basis of um, importance on both sides. Um, but then I, I will not sacrifice um, anything that I have to say about myself, about my identity, um, just because someone else doesn't agree with it. Um, and that's okay. But but at the end of the day, I need to, I need to demand that respect um, and demand that even if you do not care, that you listen. Um, I think hmm. that a lot of the times when we're trying to have conversations, that that fear of disagreement um, either stops us from having those conversations altogether, or once we get to the point where we don't agree, we end. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we end, we've ended on this bad note where we both have bad tastes in our mouths, mm-hmm. and we don't want to revisit. And then in that we just drive that prejudice deeper and deeper and deeper without leaving with any sort of understanding um, or enlightenment. Um, and I think that it's not specific to the Latinx community, that it's not specific to the black community, that it's not specific to the mixed community, that it's not specific to the trans community or the straight and the LGBTQ community and their discussions, um, that it's a universal principle. Um, you and, know, and also, oh, you know, stressing that idea of univer- uh, of of universi- of universality. I'm not sure if that's. I don't know if that's the right word, but oh yeah, I think that's um, totally appropriate there. Yeah, <laughs> kind of this just a board across the board concept mm-hmm. of respect. This tenor um, of respect that you're speaking of, I think, is is really striking, and especially hearing you as a 17, almost 18 year old speak about it. Uh, you know, the maturity of your speaking the the mature tone that you're taking is something that I think um, just so many generations so much older than you don't have at all and that's something that we wanted to talk about because your generation I think is uh, at least sort of universally known to be more understanding are you finding that I mean obviously hearing about the stories of being bullied at 13 kids are going to be fucking assholes and <laughs> kind of in any generation but but do you find that overall 
your generation, Gen Z, has more of a tenor of responsibility and respect for each other. 100%. Interesting. Okay, um, yeah, tell us, tell us a little generation bit Generation Z is the most intersectional generation um, in identity and ethnicity to exist <laughs> to date. Um, and because of those intersectional identities, we have more places of meeting. Um, we have more grounds of understanding each other. Mm -hmm. um, but also, not just our intersectionality, but the rise of the internet and the rise of internet um, communities and the ability to talk to somebody who is across the country or across the globe from you who is going through something similar to what you're going through, which was not possible just a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, and our ability to really um, take advantage of the internet and become organizers together. And in becoming organizers together on the internet, something that young people are using, mm -hmm. we learn how to educate from afar. We learn how to make new resources. We learn how to make communities and communities that are welcoming. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are there, there's no doubt that Generation Z is extremely educated. We are extreme. We we, we are very active, mm -hmm. um, and a lot. And uh, we are turning 18 this year, mm -hmm. um, and we're voting this year. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> we that's are voting <laughs> this year, and we are not letting um, that that vote. We're not, we're not we're not holding that lightly. We're holding it very heavily. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to use that to sway votes, um, to sway decisions, to sway what politicians focus on and what they think is important. Um, we're going to show up. I'm turning 18 in five days. But just think about how many people are turning 18 today and in, and from now until I turn 18. And we're all going to be voting in November. In but, your curriculum, what are the things that they teach you uh, about the civil rights movement? Um, well, wow. <laughs> it is not, I'm not trying, this, this is not a quiz. <laughs> you didn't come no, we're just quiz. curious. Like, the, the, the reason I'm asking is because when, you know, when I was, when I was your age, uh, I wasn't learning about the civil rights movement outside of the context of, um, the contributions of Martin Luther King, for example, right? And mm -hmm. and so um, we're also talking to Moctezuma Sparsa on this episode, and he's someone that led uh, 22,000 uh, high school and and other students on walkouts to protest things in at, in his in his district in East LA, and this was in 1968. It was the largest um, it was the largest student walkout. In, in history at that point, and I never learned about him. And mm -hmm. I, I never mm -hmm. learned about um, even Dolores Huerta or Cesar Chavez. Like, those were not things that I was learning in school. So I am wondering, we are wondering, is, the gener is your generation learning about those parts of the civil rights movement? Well, no, we're not. I have not heard any of the names that you just mentioned. <gasps> um, oh my God, oh my, the, the studio's on fire. But, it, but, <laughs> but not because of, but not because you're not learning about it. No. We're, I mean, we're I'm still I'm still like so one of the things that 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 in when we talked to to Moctezuma that made me uh, that made me want to cry was when he said, you know, how hurt he is that 50 years after after all the work that he did, um, people are still not learning about about him and about the movement that that Latinx people that Chicanos led during yeah. the civil rights movement. So also, that's what makes me me too because it's not your fault by any means, nor was it our fault that we didn't learn. If anything, it's actually the fault of our generation and above for not insisting mm -hmm. that this is taught in, in schools. Mm -hmm. It's real frustrating to hear. It's real frustrating. So wow. No, yeah, it is. Um, it's very frustrating. One question we wanted to talk about with regard to your identity as an Afro-Latina. You do identify as Afro-Latina, yeah? Or is that I some, do. You do, okay. And does that, how does that influence your activism? Um, that, that influences my activism specifically in recognizing the tables that I came from mm -hmm. um, and the people that now it is my responsibility to represent at the table, but also bring to the table because I, I, I have an intersectional identity as do many other people. Mm -hmm. um, but I cannot speak for every intersection, and I can, and 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 I can't try to, um, because every story 
every experience, every community deserves representation and the integrity to tell their own stories. Mm -hmm. Um, So most of my work is focused on widening our scope of representation and authentic representation. Right now we suffer from um, inauthentic (laughs) representation in mainstream media, Specifically, right now for trans women um, and the stories of trans women and trans women of color, um, they're being taken. They're being written by people who are not transgender. Mm -hmm. They are being casted by people who are not transgender. The roles are being cast to actors who are not transgender. Mm -hmm. And the money is not going to actors, producers, directors, screenwriters, crew members who are transgender. Yeah. 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 Um, so so it's it's now my responsibility um, and I take it I take it very willingly um, to use my education I'm studying I'm studying film um, to make sure that our identities are normalized but normalized by us and us only hmm. um, and that our stories are told by us and us only and that we are uh, that I'm offering that we are offering um, employment opportunities to these women and men and non-conforming individuals who have been who have not been given jobs who have not been given strong pathways to jobs that now are not employed with money enough to seek adequate and comprehensive health care mm-hmm. and who are under attack by laws that now legalize and protect that that very discrimination that leaves them without jobs, that leaves them without homes, that leaves them without support, that leaves them on the streets, that leaves them on the streets to turn to other forms of work that are not un- that are not safe for them, that do not have protections for them, that just continue to continue to continue the cycle of oppression. Um, so my way of tackling this is through advocacy, advocacy through art. Um, but that's just for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I challenge and hope and ask all other young people to do is find a path to advocacy that is right for them. It does mm-hmm. not have to be writing articles. It does not have to be creating films. Um, or it can be creating films. It can be writing theater pieces. It can be dance. Um, but but find a way that works for you because what you want to do and the people that you want to liberate matter. And it's possible. Um, and, and it's really important that we kind of take this... Um, this this bubble from around advocacy um, mm-hmm. and what what things have what advocacy has to look like and who can be an advocate mm-hmm. you can be your own advocate and it starts there first yeah. um, Ooh, I love that. it's so true <laughs> I love that you know these inadequacies that you're that you're calling out grace um, I think are the the first and most important step to to, to see to seek change to, to actually see um, you know, to, to see the, the needle move. Um, and that's why what, you know, just, just, just being a voice for your generation and coming out and talking to us today makes all the difference in the world. You know, we need to hear this too as a generation right above you, as millennials, because I think that we honestly could probably learn more from you guys and you guys can learn from us. Uh, just as far as not, not only the, the respect that you give each other and the use of technology, but also the, the um, acceptance of the fact that there are so many diverse voices out there that need uh, the space to be able to be heard. Um, uh, yeah, you're just like such a perfect voice for us to have represented on this show. And we're so glad that we got a chance to talk yeah, to you today. Yeah, it was such a pleasure speaking with you and learning and learning from you and learning ways that um, that we can, things that we can learn from, from your generation to activate ours as well. Yeah. Grace, where can people find you? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I want so many more people to follow the work that you're doing. So where can we do that? You can find me um, on my most active um, <laughs> social media, which is Twitter. My at is at Grace Advocates. It's pretty straightforward. Um, that's where you can find updates on what I'm doing, projects that I'm working on, um, where I'm featured, and uh, where you can reach out and we can have a conversation. Um, so I encourage everyone to do that. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Grace. Thank you so much. (laughs) 
Julissa, this has been incredible for Amazing. so many different reasons. I loved hearing the stories that you brought to the table, hearing Moctezuma and hearing Grace talk about their advocacy makes you realize that these generations actually have a lot in common. Uh, mm-hmm. All of us have a lot in common with the struggles that we face as Latinos. Um, the struggles haven't ended by any means, but there have been victories along the way that I think we should celebrate. That's yeah, part of what that we're we doing. Can, and that we can look to. Yes, um, yes. To, to find hope and inspiration. Yeah. You know, I also think that it was amazing to have uh, both Moctezuma and Grace on, on today's episode because it just really goes to show that yes, we've made so much progress, but we still have so much work to do. Yeah. Because hearing Grace say that she had never heard of Moctezuma and never heard of Dolores Huerta. Yeah. It it really it you know it really reminded me of how much work we still have to do to make sure that our history is being taught in schools. Yes. And that we continue to advocate and fight for ourselves and for our community. And that we do that via the power of the vote, y'all. So if you have not registered with Vote Save America yet, please do that we highly recommend it uh it is just amping up right now and there's a lot more for uh yeah a lot yeah, more there's, a bun- there's a bunch of awesome new content that's going on on yes. votesaveamerica.com so you can go to votesaveamerica.com to register to vote uh but you can also find out about the most competitive races in your state and how you can get involved you can watch some videos there's just really amazing content on votesaveamerica.com so go check it out I wanted to let listeners know that if you want to learn more about the types of stories that I shared with you today, the historical context, the amazing Latino civil rights leaders from the past, you can follow the hashtag 30 Days of Latinx, uh, where I am sharing stories daily during Hispanic Heritage Month about these amazing people. They're so good. Bye. See you next week. Check them out. And buy my book. Someone (laughs) like me. I have nothing to plug. I have hysteria. That's it. Yeah, listen to Hysteria. Yeah, duh. And vote. It's amazing. And vote. (laughs) And buy my book. Someone like me. (laughs) See you next week. Thank you. See you next week. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag and Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack.